invite you to turn your Bible tonight to um, the uh, letter, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I, um, as, we've, as you know, been, we've been looking at some of the great texts of Scripture. As far as I can tell, the last time I preached on this text was October uh, 1994. So it's been a while. And uh, I can't believe it's been that long since, um, since I've preached on this text. I've referred to it many times, but it's such a classic gospel text. I'm uh, excited to be opening it again with you tonight. We're going to be looking at specifically verses 14 through 21. 14 through 21. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Let's give our attention to God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, this is your holy, inscribed, inerrant, unfading, and unfailing word. And we, Lord, believe that you here have bread from heaven for us. And so I pray you'd give us the ability to eat and to drink this gospel truth, to be satisfied, to be transformed, to be built up in our faith, to be convicted because of our sin, but yet in all of it to see Jesus Christ, the lover of our soul, and to see God the Father who sent the Son for our sake. So bless us, Lord, tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message tonight is The Difference Jesus Makes. Um, hopefully you have an outline that um, might help as we go along. The difference 
Jesus makes. <clears throat> this past weekend, Dale Beckering and I had the opportunity to uh, jump down to uh, Florida, St. Augustine, uh, where we uh, attended a conference uh, sponsored by Covenant OPC. Uh, Eric Watkins is the pastor down there, on uh, a biblical understanding of racial reconciliation. It was a fantastic conference. Um, Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary in California, was there. Dennis Johnson, just retired professor. Um, there were a bunch of folks I didn't know. Terry Johnson has written some great stuff on worship. Uh, there was um, uh, Alicia and Gabe Williams, a couple from uh, Charleston, South Carolina, a black couple that um, had uh, just powerful messages. It was really a terrific uh, Terrific time there. And um, the, the, the speakers really pressed home the point that when it comes to this uh, very sort of uh, uh, controversial or emotionally charged discussion of racial reconciliation, um, what, what sometimes gets missed is that there is uh, the only reconciliation possible is the reconciliation that God accomplishes in Jesus Christ. That Jesus alone can heal the wounds of this world. And, and not only the, the, racial, the wounds of racial injustice, but every injustice and every form of evil, every work of the devil. Uh, no effort of man, no social program is able to change a sinful heart. <clears throat> but Jesus changes everything. The conference was kicked off Friday night uh, by a man named H.B. Charles. Uh, a wonderful preacher, uh, from uh, a black pastor from uh, Jacksonville, Florida. And... Um, he preached on this text, and about halfway through, I leaned over to Dale Beckering, and I said, that'll preach. So if, uh, you, um, um, if you hear me referring to HB tonight, I just want to publicly say I owe him a debt of gratitude. I was greatly encouraged and challenged, uh, convicted by his message, and uh, be sharing some of the things that he said with you tonight. Second Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul is engaged in the defense of his ministry. There have been people who came into the church at Corinth who were very impressive people. They, had, uh, they were very bright. They were polished uh, in rhetoric and um, were able to speak well. And uh, they were sort of um, um, leading the church there in Corinth, the church that Paul had planted, to just kind of um, don't give so much attention to, uh, to Paul. Uh, yes, he's an apostle, but he's, he's kind of timid, he's kind of weak, he's not that impressive in person, and, and, um, and, and so they're, they're turning the hearts of the people away, and, and Paul feels uh, compelled then to make a defense of his ministry, not because he's arguing for his reputation, but he's arguing for the ability to continue to minister to them as the apostle of Jesus Christ. And so in verse, uh, in verse 12, he says, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not what is in the heart. Uh, people are saying, man, this, this, uh, this preacher came and, wow, could he talk? He's just not like Paul, big, tall, strong man. And, and Paul maybe had some eye troubles, whatever. Uh, he, was, he was physically different than the apostle. And, and Paul says, well, that's just looking with outward appearance. And he's going to talk about that. But in, in the context of defending his ministry, Paul um, tells the story about the difference Jesus made in his life. The radical difference that Jesus made in his life. The way the gospel um, transformed his way of seeing people. The way the gospel had gloriously changed his status before God. The way the gospel had completely altered his mission and purpose in life. Jesus had changed everything about the Apostle Paul. And tonight we're going to then look at the change that Jesus makes and the gospel makes when sinners come to faith. 
in Christ. First of all, a new principle. Verses 14 and 15, a new principle. Uh, what would you say is the primary motivating principle of every man, woman, boy, and girl um, who, who are still in, Adam, in, in, in Adam's sin, who are still um, in the fall, right? What, what drives people? Why do people do what they do? Well, there, people are complicated, and there's lots of reasons, but if you dig down uh, to the bottom of it, you're going to find the same things. You're going to find pride and self. Um, that's what, you'll, that's what motivates fallen people, pride in self. We are hardwired by virtue of the effect of the fall for self-worship and self-service. And that seems normal and natural to us. That needs no justification. Well, of course, I'm looking out for number one. It's my job to look out for number one. Who else will? That's normal for people. No one has to teach a one-year-old how to say mine. Right? You don't sit down and, now listen, when your brother takes this, I want you to grab it and steal it away and, uh, and scream mine, the top of your lungs. Did anybody teach your child to do that? No. So where'd they learn that? From the devil, <laughs> right? From the fall, they're hardwired for it. And so are we all. And that was Saul's life before he met Christ. Saul was a man uh, extremely gifted, accomplished, well-educated in a, in, a, in a time when most people by far were not educated, the vast majority of people. And Paul was a very proud worshiper of self and committed then to self-worship and self-service, even in his religion. You remember the guy who prayed, uh, God, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Remember that guy? extortioners and unjust and adulterers or even like this, this uh, tax collector. I fast twice a week, oh God, and I give tithes of all that I get, oh God. Remember that guy? Uh, that was Saul. Not him personally, but that was, that was Saul. I mean, that, that was the motivating uh, power behind everything that he did. The same exact spirit. An arrogant, self-righteous man who was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ in the confidence that this was pleasing to God. That God must be so happy. He's compelled by pride. But Jesus changed everything. Paul writes of it in verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There was something that happened, something radical. Uh, something had, had changed in the inside. You see, the engine that drove Saul of Tarsus, uh, that drove his thoughts and attitudes and actions, his words... That was the engine of self-interest and self-love and self-advancement and self-worship, but something had happened when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He'd had an engine overhaul, right? The old engine of self was pulled out, and his life now comes under the constrained, controlling love of Christ. The word control here is an interesting word. It, it's a very strong word. It's a word that is sometimes used to mean imprisoned. So when, when Luke talks about Jesus being arrested and held in a cell, imprisoned, that's, this is the word. Uh, it means to be constrained, hemmed in. One of the speakers uh, at the conference, uh, Mark Robinson, great, uh, he had a great talk. Uh, and uh, 
he describes himself in his Twitter feed as uh, someone imprisoned by the love of Christ. That's exactly it. Imprisoned by the love of Christ. You see, the love of Christ completely dominates Paul's life so that it, it, it hems him in. And when, and when the flesh maybe wants to run off in this direction, it runs into the wall of the love of Jesus Christ for him. When he maybe is tempted to give up and, and, and just serve himself for a bit and, and stop talking to these Jews who, who hate his guts and, and these Gentiles who, who beat him and, and whip him and arrest him and just forget it. You see, when he's tempted to serve himself, the love of Christ constrains him. He can't stop talking. So the, the, the engine in Paul's life is no longer self. It's become the love of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, we didn't just sort of get there by accident. We have concluded this. The word means to carefully examine something and then come to a sound judgment. Paul says, we've carefully examined the facts of the gospel, the reality of Jesus Christ. We've carefully examined the truth of his death and, and the truth of his resurrection. And we've come to this profound, profound conclusion, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. That if he did this for our sake, then our life is not our own. In fact, Christ is our life. Colossians 3.14, to live is Christ, Philippians 1.21. And Christ and the love that Christ has for Paul becomes the controlling, motivating principle of his life. What's the motivating principle of your life? What's behind the way you talk? What's behind the things that you say and dream about and do? What's behind your attitudes? Is it the love of Christ? Or do you wear the name Christian lightly? It's something you do on Sundays. Maybe if you remember to say a prayer sometime during the week, uh, you would nod in assent to various doctrinal truths. But the motivating principle of your life is still, it's you. It's not the love of Christ. The gospel that Paul preached, the gospel that the Bible teaches is a gospel that can change the motivating principle of your life. So you actually become a different person from the inside out. And it changes what drives you and it changes how you talk and how you feel and what you say, what you, uh, what you do. Paul is gripped, you see. His, his life has been gripped by this one thought. Jesus loves me, this I know. That was the controlling thought and motive of Paul's life. And Jesus can do the same for you. He can do the same for me. Jesus not only changed Paul's, uh, the principle of, of, of Paul's life, but gave him a new perspective, verse 16, a brand new perspective. From now on, we, uh, we, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. If you'd like to hear a fantastic sermon on that text, I just uh, refer you to Eric Hausler's message that he preached here at Harvest, I think August 2017, I believe. You can find it online. And uh, if, just a terrific sermon dealing with this one verse. Uh, Paul says here, we once regarded people according to the flesh. We once looked at the world superficially and sinfully. It's the most natural thing in the world, and, and we all do it still. We regard people according to what we see with our eyes, and so we, we make snap judgments about people according to their appearance, 
their ethnicity, skin color, social class, physical attractiveness, their personality, their gender, their gifts, skills. Who here loves to meet smart, attractive, gifted, influential, funny, or wealthy people? Thank you. We had one honest person over here. Of course we do. We love meeting those people. We tend to ignore poor, poorly dressed, smelly, unattractive, obnoxious people. And we don't even think about it. It seems perfectly normal and right. We judge people according to external issues and our own personal prejudices, and, and, and it's sin. It's sin. That's how sinful people see. And that's why the religious leaders couldn't see Jesus. Because he was from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. It's a known fact. Jesus was poor. Jesus was physically unattractive. Jesus was friends with the wrong people. Jesus didn't meet their standard of religious purity. And Paul says, I used to think just like that. Though he probably never uh, met Jesus personally in his life, he knew of him. And like the other Pharisees, he saw Jesus the way they saw Jesus. A false teacher, breaker of Sabbath, a blasphemer. Someone who had the audacity to say God was his father, the thrice holy God, his own father. As he's eating with prostitutes and befriending sinners. But he got what he deserved. He died for his crimes. He died the death of the damned as he deserved. Crucified on a Roman cross. And now all that's left in Paul's mind, in Saul's mind, was just to stomp out the followers, the disciples. And Paul is saying here, he's confessing, that's how I used to think. That's what I thought about Jesus. But then he met him on the road to Damascus where there was a blinding light and a, and, and a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And it changed everything. And Saul of Tarsus came to see that the Jesus whom he had been persecuting was in fact the very son of God. He speaks of it in Colossians chapter 1. This Jesus, who he used to think was a, a, a poor, blaspheming, uh, unclean, false teacher. Paul writes in, in Colossians 1, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and here's the, the amazing thing, and for him. He didn't just make it all. He did, didn't just make the kings. He made the kings for his own purposes, for his own intentions, for his own glory. Because, you see, he is before all things, and in him everything holds together. And this Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, everything, he, Jesus, might be preeminent. Because, you see, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's what he thinks of Jesus now. Completely changes perspective. And seeing, you see, the truth about Jesus changed the way Paul looked at people. He no longer looked at people according to the categories of this world. He didn't see Jews and Gentiles, male, female, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. Of course, people remained all these, all those things. But, but Paul saw people 
Just people. People made in the image of God, every one of them. People ruined in Adam's fall, every one of them. People desperately in need of what only Jesus Christ could give them, redemption. That's what he saw. Is that what you see when you go about in the world? Do you see people who matter because they're made in the image of God and people who are bound in sin and desperately in need of a, of a Savior? H.B. told a cute story. He was a pastor of a predominantly black church in Jacksonville, and they decided to merge with a predominantly white church in, in Jacksonville. And, and so they're having these meetings and talking about how this would go, and he's at an informational meeting with the, uh, with the white congregation and uh, seeing if there's any questions. And someone stands up and says, Pastor, if, if, uh, if this happens, if you take over here, will we still be allowed to have our beast feast? And... Uh, and the Beast Feast, well, yeah, the Beast Feast was um, sort of an outreach event to the local rednecks where they would, um, they would get guys together and they'd go out and they'd shoot things and then bring them back to church and they'd cook it up and eat it. It was a big hit. And, uh, and HB said, well, he said, I, I had children so I knew how to answer. I said, uh, we'll see. He was out in the parking lot after the, uh, after the meeting talking and kind of chucking with some of his elders and other pastors about this. And, and the same man comes walking out of the church and heading towards his car. And, and H.B. said, you know, uh, hey, come over here and explain to these guys. They don't believe me. And so the guy came over and explained what the beast feast was. And um, they, they had a good chuckle about this, this outreach to the rednecks. And, and then as the man turned to walk away, he said, uh, you know, Pastor, at the foot of the cross, we all just rednecks. We're all just rednecks at the foot of the cross. There's no difference. Red, yellow, black, or white, doesn't matter. We're just sinners who deserve to go to hell. None worthy all needy, and when we see the truth about Jesus, we see the truth about ourselves, and we can see the truth about everybody else, and that truth includes not only what we are without Christ, but it includes the truth about what we are in Christ, what happens when someone comes to Christ. As Paul speaks in verse 17, one of the most distinctive truths about the gospel is, that, is what happens when people become a Christian. And, and Paul lists two wonderful, glorious things. Uh, he talks about regeneration and reconciliation. Regeneration, verse 17, and reconciliation, verse 18 and following. So a new person, you see, that's what happens when someone sees Jesus. And a new person who has first a new nature, that's regeneration. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And, and don't miss the, the, the words uh, in Christ, if anyone is in Christ. That's the essence of a new believer's identity. You see, in Scripture, we see that God looks at uh, humanity in a binary way. There's only two people groups in all the history of the world. There are those who are in Adam and in his fall and in his sin, and there are those who are in Christ. 
and that's it. There's no one else. Again, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity, doesn't matter your skin color, doesn't matter your economic class, doesn't matter what the gender is. There are two groups of people. And that means, you see, that all those other things about you, though they're all given by God, ordained by God, they're not the most important aspect of you, not even close. The most essential question will always be, to whom do you belong? Do you belong to Adam, or do you belong to Jesus? Who are you in? You see, what happens to a Christian is is that they are moved from the kingdom of darkness and from the parentage of Adam, and they're brought into the kingdom of light and the tutelage and the federal headship of Jesus Christ, so that that what is uh, once, you see, was true of them. Everything that was true of Adam was true for them. They were born in sin. They were under the curse. They were, they were due for condemnation. They were dead and blind and, and objects of the wrath of God. That's what it means to be in Adam. But what happens in the gospel is people are placed in Christ. And this union with Christ, this, this, this unity, you see, Christianity is utterly unique. No other religion has this. No one is in Muhammad. Or in Buddha. To become a Muslim or a, a Buddhist, just all you need to do is adopt the tenets and practices of that religion. But you see, that's not how you become a Christian. You don't just say yes to the tenets and practices of Christianity. To become a Christian takes a supernatural work of God where he actually regenerates your dead heart and takes you out of uh, the, the family of Adam and places you in the person of Jesus. That's regeneration. To come to life is to come to Christ, and Christ then actually is your life. He's your identity He's your destiny. Paul says exactly that in Colossians 3, verse 3 and 4. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's your identity. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's the most essential, important truth about your identity as a Christian. And Paul goes on to say, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's your destiny. Jesus is your destiny. Where he is, you will be. You must be. As he is, you will be. You must be if you are in Christ. So if anyone is in Christ... Behold, wake up, notice, rejoice. Behold, he is a new creation. All the way through, you are not a remodeled creation. You're not a refurbished creation. You're not a remanufactured creation. You're a new creation. If you are in Christ. The old has passed. It's aorist, active, indicative. It means a completed, accomplished fact. And behold, the new has come. Again, an accomplished 
reality. It's here, the new. When Jesus rose to life out of that grave, the newness that you experienced by faith in him was sealed. And you are now eternally a part of God's new creation. Now, how does, how does that happen? How did you become a new creation, a citizen of a new kingdom and a new heaven and, and new earth? Well, Paul says God made it happen. Verse 18, he made it happen. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. All this is from God. Religion, you see, may be the story of man's search for deity, search for God, but the gospel is the story of God's search for men. God seeking and finding every single last one of his lost elect children and bringing every single last one home to himself in Christ Jesus. That's what God is doing. That's what he's done. He's reconciling sinners through Christ to himself. The, the, the beauty of the doctrine of reconciliation can really only be seen against the backdrop of the, of the truth of alienation. The brokenness of the world, the tragedy of mankind, you see, is that our sins have separated us from God. And so when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, physically expelled, even though they still have a spiritual communion, they've lost the intimacy of that fellowship. And, and, and the truth is, you see, that as people embrace their sin and live in their sin, they, you don't even have that spiritual communion. That's the, that's the tragedy of our world. That we're born enemies of God, objects of wrath, allied with the devil, and we like it that way. We like it that way, by left to ourselves. But God, but God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. We did not reconcile ourselves to God. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. How? How was that, that, that huge chasm between a holy God and happily rebellious sinners, how was that chasm crossed? Notice what he says in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. I want you to note two things. So we start to come to the end. Two things. First, what God didn't do, and secondly, what God did do. First notice what God did not do, not counting our trespasses against us. That is a stunning truth. The Bible uses a variety of words to speak of sin. It'll talk about sin, it'll talk about iniquity, it will talk about transgressions, and it will talk about trespasses. Trespasses that highlights the rebellious, completely inexcusable evil of sin. H.P. Charles had a good line. He says, you can sin with good intentions. You can't trespass with good intentions. Because you see, trespass is you know the law, you know what God desires, the law being written on your own heart, but you 
You want to sin. You want to violate the law. You want what you want. You want to serve your own pleasures. You, you want to serve your own desires, your own flesh. And so knowing that it is evil, knowing that God is displeased, knowing that it dishonors him, you spit in his face and you do it anyway. So when Adam and Eve took the fruit, that's, trans, that's trespass. When David takes Bathsheba, that's trespass. When he murders Uriah, her husband, that's trespass. And every time you do what you know is wrong and your conscience is screaming at you that it's wrong and you do it because you want to do it, that's rebellion, that's wickedness, it's utterly inexcusable, it's trespass. But what a gospel that says that God doesn't count our trespasses against us. You see, it might be possible for us to believe that God could forgive our unintentional sins we didn't mean to, but we ended up doing what was wrong. We could believe that. Maybe we could believe that God would even be able to forgive our iniquities, the various violations of his will. But what about our trespasses? What about the sins that you've done with a high hand, you've done on purpose, and maybe repeatedly? Well, hear the gospel, Romans 4.25 he was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised to life for our justification. Ephesians 1 verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God wants sinners to know that no matter how grievous their rebellion, no matter how vile and wicked their, their sin, no matter how they've offended God, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. Well, how is he able to do that? What's the foundation for that truth? And, and we read of that in verse 21, where we see, secondly, what God did. What God did, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Maybe the, the best one-verse summary of the gospel in all the Bible. For our sake, let's just let those words settle on you. Think of the mystery of that. Think of the weight of this. That for your sake, for your sake, knowing your need, knowing your utter inability, for your sake, God sent his own son to death. For your sake, God took all the guilt and the shame and the evil of your trespasses and he placed it all upon his perfectly obedient son and made him to be sin who knew no sin, who every moment of his life on earth said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And God took all your evil and placed it on him and then crushed his son with the sentence of divine death and, and, and justice, so that in him, Jesus, the, the, the sin bearer, the Lamb of God, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the core truth of the gospel, the great gospel exchange. This is what God has done in Jesus. Place your trespasses on the Son so that, his, so that he might die and then took his righteous life and gave it to you so that you might live. 
I've, uh, when I've met and just talked to people about the gospel, I just, just think about your life. You know, Google knows every site you've ever visited. They know every place you've been. If your phone was on and, and tracking was on, they know, they know so much about you. But that doesn't come close to what God knows. And every thought and every word and every deed, just imagine it's all written in a book. Every, every page full of all your offenses against God. And, and not anywhere in this book, anything that all by itself in your power uh, would be to your credit. Every single thing, every page, evidence for why you should be condemned. And it would be a big book. And in the gospel, what, what happens is God takes the book of your life, this stained, vile, filthy thing, and he places it on Jesus. And Jesus dies bearing the reality, not a metaphorical, symbolic death, a real death for real sin, objective guilt. And then imagine a book full of, uh, of all the obedience of Christ's life, every, every thought and word and action and attitude, all perfectly pleasing to the Father. You wouldn't find a single thing on any page that was less than perfect love and hope and joy and peace in God. Every single word would, be, would, be, uh, would just sing the glory of God and, and, and the Father would say, well done, well done, well done. To every, every sentence, every line. And then imagine God taking that life, that obedience, and giving it to you as your righteousness. So that all the guilt is gone and all the righteousness is present forever. Who shall lay any charge to God's elect is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who intercedes and Christ paid the price. Christ who obeyed in our place, in our behalf. You see, friends, that changes everything. That changes everything. If that's true, it changes everything about your life. Can you see why Paul would conclude, would say that we've concluded this, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. For their sake. You see, if you, if you believe that, it's going, it's going to impact how you think and how you feel. I, I don't know what you're facing in your life today. God does. But I know without a shadow of a doubt that if, if God did all of this for your sake and if he did all this for my sake, then we simply cannot just live as though it didn't happen or as though it doesn't matter. That it, it, if it's true and if God did this for your sake, then it, then it has to have a constraining and compelling power. Then we've got to be able to look at our life and look at our sin, our actions and attitudes, and we have to be able to say, I simply can't do this anymore. I can't live as though that sacrifice doesn't matter. I can't live as though God has done all this for my sake and then just continue to fight and to quarrel and to strive and sin, and lust, and envy. I just, I just can't. And I don't need to be afraid anymore. If Jesus did all this for my sake, if God has done all this for my sake, and, and God, that God says, peace, peace be with you, then I don't, we don't have to be afraid of anything. It's going to change how we think. It's going to change how we feel. It's going to change how we live. It'll change how we pray. 
Our prayers will more and more be, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because it's really, it's not about me. It's about you. My life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you, Jesus. It belongs to your purposes, to be used for your glory, the promotion of your kingdom. Jesus changes everything. And that's where Paul ends. Jesus changes his purpose, a new purpose. We are, therefore, ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The gospel is the message of God reconciling sinners to himself in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It's a message to be proclaimed. It's not an act to be performed. The church is the delivery system for that message. Charles again said, evangelism is not an optional ministry for the church. It's our sacred trust. To us has been given the message of reconciliation. We live in the midst of a dark world, an evil age, and we live here to shine like stars in the universe. We live here to to see people as they are, who they are, what they need, and with the hope of the gospel, implore people to be reconciled to God. What does our world need? Well, the world will say we need many things. We need safer streets. We need better schools. We need racial harmony. We need economic uh, uh, changes. And, and, and they could point to the evidences of, of, that those things, are, those things are, are true. They're real. But that's not what the world needs, primarily needs. And that's not what the church has been entrusted with, primarily entrusted with. We have a better message. That in all the ravages of sin and their their legions, in all the ravages of sin, to every person, we can promise, you see, be reconciled to God. We implore you, be reconciled to God. God has made a way. And when you are reconciled to God, you'll find it changes everything. And so let's, let's give ourselves to that purpose. Let's begin by believing it and receiving it. You'll never be constrained by the love of Christ if you're not convinced of it. Maybe that's why Paul prayed for them in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. We'll never be constrained by it unless we're convinced of it. What's keeping you maybe from believing, really believing and receiving the love of God for you in Jesus Christ? Cynicism, unbelief, pride. Maybe you just haven't thought about it. It's essential that you do. Are you willing to be imprisoned by the love of Christ? Act absolutely ravaged by the love of God for you, the sinner, in Jesus Christ, so that you can happily receive and enjoy the reality of regeneration, the fact that you are a new creation in Jesus Christ, the reality of reconciliation that God does not and will not ever count your trespasses against you. They are all forgiven and washed away. So that now being constrained by love, you desire to live for him. In every area of your life, your finances, your entertainment, your sex life, your work life, your family life, every aspect of your life now constrained and compelled by the love of Christ. So that the motto of your life becomes the same as the motto of Paul's life, Galatians 2 verse 20. The life 
I've been crucified with Christ, he says, so that I no longer live. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, that's the Christian life. Maybe you're not a Christian tonight. Maybe you're here, you've been maybe coming for a while. Maybe it's the first time, I don't know. I could just like to ask you, are you reconciled to God? Do you believe this is true? Do you understand the invitation that God gives to you to be reconciled? To have all your sins washed away, to be made a new creation, to be united to Jesus Christ, bound for eternity? Maybe you're a Christian, and yet you've never really come to terms with the reality of what God has accomplished for you in Jesus Christ and what God desires for you in Jesus Christ. We're going to close with just a moment of of silent prayer, and I'm going to invite you to just talk to the Lord, the living God, who for your sake sent his Son to die for you that you might live in him. Let's just take some time to talk to the Lord, and then I'll close in prayer. Oh, God, our Father in heaven, you know every, every unclean thought, every wicked word, every God-denying action and attitude. Father, you know us completely. And yet, you tell us that you've loved us with an everlasting love, and for our sake, you sent your Son to die for us. And that means, oh, God, that we, we see Jesus with new eyes, that he is the lover of our soul. He's he's the lamb who died bearing our sin. He's the sinner's friend. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the one for whom we were made. He's our identity and our destiny. And we confess with great sorrow how easily we forget him, forget about him and live our life as though we were still in the flesh. Father, I thank you for your word that opens our eyes and reminds us and helps us to see. And Lord, I pray that it would change the way we look at people, that we don't see as the world sees, but we would see through the lens of Scripture and through the perspective of the gospel, and that we would love sinners and plead with them to be reconciled to God, to join us in knowing Christ and living for Christ. And Lord, I pray that this, would, this truth would impact us as we go home tonight. It would impact us when we go to bed tonight and we get up tomorrow morning. 
and we live with the people we live with and work with the people we work with and the people we go to school with. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us the ability to know the love of Christ in a way that constrains us and so besetting sins are set aside. Temptations lose their power because we belong to Jesus and he's beautiful. He's lovely and he's worthy. And we are entering in more and more into the joy of knowing him and, and walking with him and communing with him and living for him. Father, may that just keep, Lord, this from just being a word that we hear and without, Lord, making an impact in how we think and feel and live. Because, Lord, this is your purpose in the world. All this is from God, who has reconciled the world to himself. And can we say with Paul, we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Jesus who lives in me. And the life we now live, we live by faith in him, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Let's close with a hymn of thanksgiving and praise. I will sing of my Redeemer, he who took the nails for me. Let's stand together and sing.